The population is growing and some reports have suggested 5 trillion globally is expected to be handed down to the next generation over the next 30 years, both in terms of property and investments. Investable wealth is around 2.5 trillion to 3 trillion, meaning the need for financial planning will become greater. However, the sad fact about this is that there are too few financial advisors able to serve the growing number of people who would benefit from financial advice. A report by recruiters Paul Harper Search and Selection last year found the shortage in the supply of advisors could become acute as approximately 62% of financial planners plan to retire in the next 10 years and 60% also turned away clients in the past 12 months. With such startling figures, it has become more important than ever to bring financial advisors into the space and so today we will be talking about the growth of academies in the industry, whether it will help close the advice gap and what IFAs are already doing or could be doing to support this. I'm Sonia Arch, Senior Reporter here at FT Advisor and joining me today will be Sarah Lord, President of the Personal Finance Society and Matt Jordan, Academy Development Manager at OpenWork. Hi both. Hi. Hello. So Matt, I'll come to you first, if I may, on one of our first talking points. I mentioned this intergenerational wealth transfer over the years to come. Given this, how do you think the growth of academies will help serve the next generation of clients? I think there's a, a couple of factors involved. You've got one, the volume um, impact. So you've got a lot of assets there that, of course, need advisors to be able to service that, that population of clients and assets, of course, as well. I think there's a secondary factor in there, though, and that is that if you're talking about a transfer of assets, you're typically talking about a client who's been with an advisor for a period of time. So I think academies can do two things there. One is they can provide the volume number of advisors that we need to actually service that, that population of advice. I think the second factor that's, that's probably overlooked a lot of the time when we're talking about academies is the consistency of advice as well. So what you can have with academies is that you can produce a number of people, but those people are then going to go back into those businesses that are currently looking after the client. So you've got a bit of a seamless transfer as well. And I don't think that can be underestimated when we're talking about a client who's had an existing relationship with an advisor for a number of years. It's the reassurance that they're going into something that's not going to be completely different. Of course, you can have personalities that come into it, but the sort of the key sort of founding principles of advice should hopefully be quite similar if they're coming from the same firm. So I think that's an extra benefit there. Sure, yeah, no, that, that kind of makes complete sense. And um, I guess moving over to you, Sarah, what are your thoughts on this and, and kind of how do you think academies are doing? Is it good or bad uh, for the future of the profession? And are they doing a good job, I guess, at, at driving kind of the growth of younger advisors into the profession? Yeah, I mean, I think in your introduction, you highlighted some of the challenges that we face as a profession. Um, and certainly, um, as Matt's outlined, um, academies have a significant role, I believe, to play in what I would refer to as the sustainability of our profession, because ultimately we need to be um, creating opportunity and roles for the next gen advisors coming in to the profession to be servicing those clients with the intergenerational wealth transfer and We've got to be doing that to be sustainable um, for the future. So absolutely agree with the points that Matt has made, particularly around that point around consistency as well, um, because I, th I do think that's important. I talk a lot about um, sustainability for our profession, and I'm sure we'll come on to other aspects that link to this with the academies. 
But I think it's really important that there is that focus around recognising the need to acknowledge the intergenerational wealth transfer and the needs of the clients of, say, the baby boomers that we have typically serviced over the last 20 years, where the money's going to transfer to the next generation of client. That next generation client is possibly looking for something slightly different from their advisor but they will get a consistent approach by using you know using the same firm if they you know um, the academy approach so i think it's really important that we are focused on how academies have a role to play in the sustainability of our profession yeah and i guess um just kind of uh, continuing with that what what is it that you think i guess um the kind of next generation of of clients are are seeking from advisors or, or what is it that advisors may have to do differently i think for, for me what the one aspect that i i talk fairly frequently about and i think people are across the profession we we are adapting to this but i think typically and you know this is very typically and obviously every client's needs do vary but very typically the baby boomer typical client um where the wealth is held at the moment historically and currently are looking for a service from their advisor that is very much human driven they're used to those personal relationships but is technology enabled so people are far more tech savvy particularly post-pandemic so they are looking for that enablement through technology whereas i think the next generation of client who have grown up far more with technology as part and parcel of their life are looking more for a technology driven approach but it is human enabled they still want that human touch that personal interaction but the balance between how much they shall we say serve themselves using technology and the access they have I think there's a different balance there between the generations and therefore that for me is the main difference ultimately people still have the same financial planning needs goals and objectives in different ways but it's how those needs are met and through the service that's delivered and where you've got firms that essentially are focused on that full generational approach both from a client perspective and also their advisor um, advisors that can service those clients those are the businesses that I, I really do think are going to succeed yeah and, and Matt did you kind of have anything you wanted to add to that yeah, I, well, I totally agree with what Sarah just said. And it is very hard to talk about sort of generalizations with clients because it's so easy to sort of describe something that perhaps isn't true for, for a number of different people. But I think I'd echo what Sarah said in terms of if you look at the baby boomers, there was they've grown up in a world their sort of financial journey would have started probably with a visit to the bank manager. You know, it was quite controlled. The flow of information wasn't readily available. And if you grow your sort of financial journey from that point, you'll find a lot of baby boomers don't necessarily want to be as informed as the younger generation. It's not they don't have the capacity to know, but they're just saying, that's your job. You know, you go and do that. You take that away from me. I think we typically find for the younger generations is they, they want more information. So they're, they're happy for you to do the job, but they want to be, you know, themselves empowered enough to know whether you're doing the right thing. So there's a tricky balance to be found there in terms of educating the, the younger generation more which absolutely should happen that should be the cornerstone i think for any advice is that you can educate a client 
there shouldn't be any fear that you can sort of over-educate them where they wouldn't need advice anymore. You know, you should always try and empower the client to, to take the right course of action. But equally, it's quite a fine line to, to judge because if you give too much, it becomes a bit of a, you know, there's too much information. I always use the analogy of a menu at a restaurant. And, you know, a lot of us will go out to a restaurant. If the menu is just too big, there's too much information, too much choice. The waitress or the waiter comes back again and again and again saying, what do you want for food? And it's very hard to make a decision because there's just too much information available. So it's, just, it's drawing that line between, you know, providing information somebody needs to make a, a good and well-informed decision, but also not overcomplicating it, just providing information for information's sake. So I think, you know, advisors these days have a, a ever tightening line to try and walk between, you know, informing and educating and actually taking control of a situation and providing some direction and advice. Yeah, no, I think that's a fair point. And um, being part of that generation of kind of the younger clients, I think uh, I would agree that it's something I would want to know a little bit more about as opposed to just kind of free reign to, to an advisor. Um, I guess just coming back to um, uh, both of your points and, and Sarah's point in, uh, particularly um, around kind of sustainability of, of kind of the clients and, and the next generation. Um, now, obviously, that's that's quite a fair uh, statement to make. But when it comes to, I guess, new clients, so perhaps those whose parents or kind of the baby boomers generation who don't actually have advisors themselves, how should advisors be tackling that market um, and, and, you know, gaining new clients and kind of attracting the, the next generation? Because a lot of, you know, as I said in the introduction, there's a, a lot of advisors having to turn people away because of the shortage so I mean what what kind of needs to be done there I think a lot of it is the recognition which I think you know as a profession we're, we're there we're recognizing that we need to adapt and change and evolve it's not like a revolution it is evolution which happens in any sort of profession and business and I think the biggest key around this is actually the business model and kind of the client proposition and the, and the solutions that are being offered to the client and the approach that's being offered. And, um, you know, the use of technology, but actually recognizing to attract, say, the next generation of clients, the way in which you market, the way in which you do business development, the way in which you use technology and what you're offering to those potential new clients as say as an onboarding journey or indeed kind of that initial meeting may look is likely to look a bit different to that if you were looking to attract a baby boomer client for example it may be it you know certainly from my experience it's been driven far more using technology using social media for example uh, kind of as uh, campaigns for marketing um, whereas um, traditional printers maybe worked in the past for um, you know attracting the the older clients so I think it's it's a number of factors to be honest to attract those new clients it is thinking about how you're going to reach them and then once you reach them it's also I mean talking about academies one of the one of the great things about the academies is it's not just about the technical knowledge it's the soft skills that are so important when working with clients and that again comes into it is the next generation of advisors having the skills being equipped to have the skills to engage with the next generation of client too as well as having their technical knowledge 
Yeah, no, that makes sense. And I think in terms of kind of the, the soft skills, it's something that I think it, perhaps the academies aren't uh, necessarily kind of targeting because it's very much um, academically based. So, you know, there is a lot of, you know, what you kind of know in terms of the exams and the Chartered Insurance Institute and all the exams that you have to sit. Um, I've not kind of, I'm not familiar with uh, hearing about these kind of soft skills being taught. And I guess it, maybe it's not something that can be taught, but... Um, you know, is that something about open work that kind of goes on? Yeah. So, I mean, if you if you wind back, say, two years almost to the day from where we are now, um, the the academy as it was then was all about exams. So it, it's very much the former. You know, it's about qualifications and professional standards. But of course, you walk out of that. We use the analogy in the academy, which is all about you know driving a car. It's you've passed your theory test, and if you have, and you you could. You could ace it, you know, you can get up full marks. But if somebody sat you behind the wheel of a car, it doesn't mean you know how to drive. And that's that's the key bit here. So since a couple of years ago, I was brought in and one of my colleagues as well to serve that that very purpose of, of soft skills. So the academy journey that somebody would go through today is very much a dual journey in, in one go, which is there is um, you know, ac academic exams and bits that you've got to pass along the way because you need them. You've got to have them. You've got to demonstrate that professionalism. But coinciding with that and interwoven with all of those exams is the soft skills as well. And so to give you a quick example, something perhaps around RA2, when, when advisors looking at um, risk and investment risk for the first time, and in and around that, we talk about how you then run an ATR profile, an attitude to risk profile with a client, understand what that really means. So we do some soft skills at the time that they're learning, you know, the, the, sort of the academic side, they learn the practical hand in hand. And I think you know, that really solidifies learning as well. So since we've been doing that, um, pass rates have, have gone up even more. So it's a case of here's a theory, but let's show you a little bit about how that works in practice, not in front of a client yet. You know, you're not you're not quite there, but doing it in a safe place where they can practice, ask questions and you know, really learn and embed the process as they go along. So I think it's an absolutely fundamental part. And it's something that we're just doing more and more and more as, as, as we sort of move the academy forward. Yeah, no, that's quite good to hear. And I think it's it's positive that that sort of aspect isn't kind of being overlooked um, because it is such an important part. Um, in terms of the advice gap and, and obviously just coming back to that and and it is obviously very real um, in, in kind of the next generation to come. Do you think academies that are currently in place will help boost um, advisors' numbers and, and essentially help close this advice gap? Yeah, I think there's a couple of factors. I think one is we've got about 200 people at the moment coming in as, as, as advisors and broadly speaking, about two thirds of those are wealth advisors and about a third of them sort of an MCOB, sort of a mortgage and protection license. So in terms of volume, you know, you look to be able to support enough volume coming through. But what you haven't got, of course, is, is both the, what I call the experience gap as well. So you've got volume to support the advice, which is what you're getting through academies. But there is then, uh, you know, there's a, a break between the volume of people coming through and the experience that they need to really deal with some of these, with some of these perhaps slightly more complicated clients, maybe some slightly higher net worth people. But I think also that the industry at the moment is kind of, in a certain way, geared towards leaving behind clients that are less commercially viable. You know, you mentioned right at the beginning, the sort of 60% of established advisors that have been turning people away. Uh, you know, and I very much doubt that's because any advisor wants to turn away, you know, a client they can help or any business, but they have a full diary and they can only see so many people and naturally are going to look at, you know, the, the best commercial opportunities for their, for their firm. What you tend to find with academies and new advisors is they will look at those people that are turned away 
So it's amazing how many new advisors will you know, come to me after a few weeks of being an advisor and say, can you help me with a case? You know, can you give me a hand with this one? And when they start to describe it, it's one that you'd sort of call a bit marginal. You know, there is certainly a lot of help you can give to the client, but there's going to be a lot of work for the advisor involved. And it's not, you know, not necessarily comparable. The client can afford the work that's really involved. So what it means is that you have a load of new advisors, perhaps without full diaries and without full calendars, who will be prepared to dedicate the time to that 60% of people that, you know, getting turned away every now and again. And they will develop the time to them because it's a bit of self-development for them. It's, it's, it's by no means charity work. It's very much helping a client. They're doing a great job, but they're doing it in an environment where there isn't perhaps the pressure of, you know, you've got a full calendar. You've got to pick one client to see this week. Who do you choose? And it really, um, I think, opens their eyes to how much help they can really give somebody, especially if that person has been turned away a few times from perhaps more established practices, because commercially they may not be, you know, quite what that practice is looking for. So there's there's a wave of new people coming in. I think the volume of the wave looks to be about right to be able to support advisors leaving. There's going to be an experience break, and that's the bit really we've got to focus on then to bring those newer advisors up to speed quickly and make them established. Um, but, you know, I think there is benefits that you can reap in that period as well. As I said, you know, for those clients that perhaps do get turned away, there is a, a golden opportunity for new advisors to be able to help them and, you know, get some real goodwill along the way from helping those people that have perhaps been turned down a few times, uh, you know, in, in the past few weeks or months when they're looking for advice. Yeah, no, that that kind of um, makes sense. And, and I think it is um, an interesting one that, you know, the new advisors are going to tackle this market. And, and it's something that I guess is ultimately the long term goal to, to help um, close the advice gap. Um, Sarah, did you kind of have anything you wanted to add to that? Yeah, I think Matt makes a really interesting point there about the, you know, we've got the advice gap, but we've we've also got an experience gap that, you know, this, what Matt's just outlined, is a way in which um, the newer advisors coming through can get a degree of experience and put their knowledge and the soft skills that they've learned through the academy, should we say, to into practice. It does concern me slightly that we have got this degree of experience gap that's that's happening um, because, you know, it does take a number of years to kind of really perfect your art shall we say as a financial advisor you know be able to handle the difficult conversations whether that's difficult conversations because it's awkward clients or difficult um, conversations because of the personal circumstances of the clients or indeed just you know the financial landscape is so complicated with legislation changes all the time just actually coming across different situations or different types of policies and having that experience you know that anything that can be done to help advisors gain experience I think is only a good thing and at the same time like Matt's kind of outlined is help with the advice gap I think is fantastic um, I think you know also you know we talk about the advice gap and it's quite clear that there are so many people in society that would benefit from advice what I do, what I am pleased to see is we're starting to see more in the financial coaching space, which is obviously very different to financial advice and what we're talking about here. But I do think it's pertinent to touch on because I think it's a stepping stone to address the advice gap. So, you know, financial coaching is very different in that it's just giving people the pointers, the tips and understanding money a bit more. 
but it does start to give that knowledge that we talked about earlier that you know empowering clients with knowledge so that they can then identify where they need advice and i do think that will it, it's not by no means going to um really address the advice gap because people will still need advice but i do think it it will help so there's a number of moving parts i think happening in the profession that will benefit people in society in how they handle their financial affairs and give them more confidence in their financial future. Yeah, and I guess in terms of a lot of the academies that are kind of in place at the moment um, and, and already offering this is, you know, the fact that a large number of them are connected to big uh, vertically integrated consolidators and, and, you know, that's kind of how they run. Do you think that, I guess, it would be good for small firms as well as big ones to kind of start taking the initiative and, and you know, joining this? I think, this, you know, we, we all recognise that our profession is quite an interesting, um, shall we say, gaggle of different types of businesses that make it up because you've got the really large nationals um, and as you say, typically vertically integrated um, and looking, um, many looking to consolidate. But the core of our profession is the smaller businesses and the more regional or local businesses. And I think the challenge for those businesses is, is essentially affordability. It's affordability of time. Often um, these businesses just actually don't have the time um, to invest and also the affordability of cost of you know being able to run you know a mini academy or so I think I think that's where we do face the challenges of profession and I do think that is an area where for example apprenticeship schemes can help the smaller businesses by having a structure around the apprenticeship to encourage the next generation of advisors and you know going back to our conversation i suppose really at the start about that transition of that wealth actually um, that type of approach for the smaller businesses is a great way of the next generation of advisors um, learning their craft but also building the relationships with the clients as the wealth transfers but I do think, um, I don't know whether Matt um, has a different view, I do think academies or the, the academy approach is very much more suited to the large institutions and companies because they've got the resources um, to do it than the smaller businesses. So need to think differently, shall we say, for the smaller businesses. This is where I find this subject just so fascinating because there's so many different elements that come together to you know that that can be positive and both negative. So, um, picking up some of the Sarah said a minute ago, you know, if we can educate people to know when to seek advice, that could actually make the advice gap worse. You know, that could have people coming forward and saying, Do you know what, I've realised I need help because I know enough to know when I, I don't know enough. You know, that that's really where we all want to get to. So that, that could bring more people, more clients to the fore in terms of wanting to seek advice. But when they get there, we've got to have an advisor on hand, but it can't just be an advisor. It's got to be somebody they want to deal with. And I think, you know, if you look at, so, you know, so the demographics for industry that, you know, I think it's sort of relatively well known. We've got an aging population that's, that's typically male. Academies don't tend to reflect those demographics. You know, I think about 40% of our entrants into open work are, are women. Which is, you know, which is a, it's a fantastic in comparison to the demographics of the rest of the industry. 
lots of elements need to come together to get new people, new advisors who reflect the people that want advice. So if I'm going out and seeking advice, I can get somebody who looks and feels and talks like me and understands me. That needs to be the case for every single person, every single client should see that. We've got a bit of a hybrid in open work because what we have is we've got individual member firms who, you know, some of them are nationals themselves, but some of them are, you know, one man bands and, and everything in between. So what we do through OpenWork is we provide like a central model for those businesses to tap into. So what it allows is for very small businesses, even say one man bands, to bring people into their business through an academy model where they have had support training, both in soft skills and you know, professional standards. But then they go back to a firm that is individual and it stands in its own right and has its own traits and its own flares and its own nuances which can then reflect the population and the clients that they've got as well. So we have got a hybrid in that, yeah, we're obviously a, a vertically built business. Um, however, because we're made up of these smaller member firms that run their businesses their own way, it does allow our particular sort of a pool of candidates to have a sort of a, a set level of training that is obviously to a standard that we that we prescribe. But then they're, you know, going back into businesses where they're already working, living, breathing every day where they can you know, reflect then the individuality they want to show as advisors. So they don't have to be all sort of sheep dipped is a terrible expression, but you know, that can happen if you're too vertically integrated, everyone comes out looking the same, talking the same, the same knowledge. And you know, nobody wants that. That's, that's a scary place to get to. So we definitely need choice and uh, yeah, and a variety of individuals left at the end of the journey. Yeah, no. And, and I guess kind of coming back to um, uh, one of the previous points on affordability in both terms of kind of cost and um, time. Obviously, you mentioned that and academies are probably best suited to some of the, the larger firms. I guess putting this out to both of you, do you think, I guess, uh, there's space for the government or to kind of introduce some form of an initiative or, or something to help these smaller firms, you know, other than doing apprenticeship schemes? encourage you know the next generation of uh, advisors into the space when we look at new candidates some of the first things we'll do is we'll speak to the principal of the business to find out what they want to achieve so it's not just a oh you want somebody new you know throw them into a course then and we'll have them at the other end it's very much a you know an outcomes led base that conversation you know what do you want to achieve when do you want to achieve it by is academy the right thing and it's not always you know it's, it's a route it's not always the right route for that individual and it's really important that if somebody engages in the academy journey that it's the right journey for them you know so we have that you know have people coming out the other side in the same volume that they join you know we don't want people falling off the wayside and equally that there's opportunities there i think where somebody would try and go it alone and realize that perhaps an academy journey is is better suited to them what you find in those conversations is there's lots that smaller firms can do to support people that perhaps they're not aware of. And, you know, our, you know, our industry is, is quite developed, but also reasonably young in that, you know, a lot of the successful advisors have started out by themselves and they are now the people looking to exit the industry. But they're, you know, they are the same people that have been here for, you know, 40, 50 years, perhaps. And that there's lots of skills they have. But what tends to happen is those skills are focused at clients and not necessarily at the, the individuals in their business. So I think one of the key bits that a small firm can have and, and could do quite readily is look at where value is being given in their business for roles. So that means if you have an administrator, you have a clear career path. That person is not going to be an administrator forever. That person has options to become perhaps a power planner then perhaps move into you know, a mortgage and protection license, then move on to wealth as they can broaden their skills. The key bit is, is there seems to be jumps. You know, it'd be somebody who want, who's an admin today and says, I want to be a wealth advisor and I want to be it tomorrow without the sort of the, the progression. 
um, which is fine. It can be done, but it makes that journey, as Sarah alluded to later, you know, once you're qualified, once you're an advisor, there's years you've got to go through to get the experience and, and hone your skills. And if you take a slightly slower path into it, but it is defined, it does need to be defined so somebody can see that they are moving forward. That can really help. Um, things like relationship managers. So I, I, by that, what I mean is somebody who can have the skills of an advisor, so they can fact find, they've got the regulatory knowledge. Do you necessarily want them sitting in front of a client straight away? Perhaps not. But what you can have is for them to go out and maybe fact find a client with an established advisor. And that's something that doesn't necessarily cost the business too much time. So the advisor is not having to do the fact find. They can focus on the client. Then the energy of, of the individual you know, who is sort of learning and is learning their trade, doing the fact finds, they can compare notes with the advisor after. So they're, they're doing a function which is benefiting the advisor, they're saving the advisor some time. The client's getting some value because they can see there's two people that are focused on them all in one go. And if you can show something like that, you know, that career path where you're demonstrating value to everybody. So the advisor's got to see it. You know, why would I bring somebody along with me? Clients got to see why you'd have two people in the meeting. And of course, the person trying to learn their trade needs to be able to benefit from both of those elements as well. So I think if you can demonstrate value across a career path, both to all to all stakeholders, that's where the, the beauty of a small firm can really work. And you can certainly replicate that no matter your size and, uh, you know, and, and costs certainly come out of it if you can demonstrate value at each stage. I would agree with that. And I think what I suppose picking up on some of the points that Matt, Matt said there, um, I think one of the things as a profession, there has been quite a lot of focus on the academies or graduate schemes or apprenticeships, shall we say, is kind of the, I suppose, the key routes in. And I think highlighting some of the points that Matt said, what actually, you know, there needs to be a focus on is actually tools, not necessarily government support, because arguably the apprenticeship, you know, whether you're for or against the apprenticeship scheme it is a great route in and it is a government initiative that you know um, employers can help get help with I think as a profession there possibly needs to be more help for the smaller businesses on the the how so what Matt has kind of outlined and almost from a business perspective of how they could introduce it or what the costs of taking that approach might look like what the benefits would be and i suppose more that business advice as to how to bring the next generation through because certainly um some of some people that i've spoken to over you know the more recent years about this very subject is I just haven't got time to think about how to do it. And then if I bring someone in, what happens if they leave? You know, that's one of the biggest fears um, for the smaller businesses. And so I think actually as, as, as a profession, there's probably more that we can do to support the smaller businesses with kind of that, that knowledge as to how they can help themselves with their business models and, and bringing the next generation of advisor through, which is ultimately going to help them and their business and you know their transition ultimately out of the profession and into retirement and handing those clients down yeah no sure that makes sense and I think if I just I think we're kind of running out of time but I think if we've got time for one more um I wanted to ask you both um I guess as an industry what and and firms both large and the smaller ones what should uh, we be doing aside from academies to almost raise awareness of uh, the profession of financial advice because i think 
personally before I joined the industry I didn't I didn't know much about it and I think it is something that not enough people actually know about as a profession uh you know or a career path so so maybe if you want to go first Sarah and then um come to you Matt yeah I I think I think that's the key I mean um they you know we've really grown up as an industry blooming into a profession over the course of the last 20 years and you know there are um, touched on kind of the career paths you know there are there can be clearly defined career paths now which there wasn't 10 15 20 years ago and so I think that's one of the biggest keys is being able to demonstrate to school leavers graduates you know second jobbers or even career change people that actually that you can have a really fulfilling career and there is a, a career pathway and structure that exists in a professional space so i think we all collectively as individuals as part of the profession have a role to play in raising awareness of professionalism obviously the personal finance society is supportive of that um, very much so um, and supporting members with those conversations around professionalism but actually i think it also goes back to the grassroots and doing more in schools you know doing more around financial education we you know we still need to see financial education feature more on the curriculum as far as i'm concerned and you know there are initiatives like my personal finance skills that go into schools because children need to understand finances it's a life skill but actually by them understanding finances and that life skill this it starts to open their eyes to how it could be a career for them and a profession and something that they'd be interested in you know there's been children growing up still typically I've got two young children typically think that they want to be doctors or firemen or you know astronauts or whatever it may be because that's quite visible to them and the more that we can do in schools of creating the visibility around the importance of money as a life skill I think that will help obviously that's a generational shift but we've got to start doing that now um and those those are the actions that we need to be considering for the sustainability of our profession. Sure. And and Matt, did you have anything you wanted to um, add along to that? Yeah, I think Sarah's explained very eloquently the the professional side of what we can do. Some sort of moving forward, but yeah, it's the grassroots bit that I'll, I'll sort of add to if, if you don't mind. Um, you know, the, the nature in which we work tends to be behind closed doors for, you know, for privacy reasons, and, and that's as it should be. You know, that, that's that's absolutely proper and correct. But what that that does prevent, of course, is people seeing what those meetings really look like. And you know, when we do assessments for our academy, one of the things we we'll say is, you know, why do you want to be an advisor? And we get a range of reasons. Um, but very rarely, it's because anyone's actually seen an advisor, and because they therefore they you know, hand on heart, I want to do it. I've seen it happen, and want to be that person. They have an idea of what it might be like and that's the idea they're chasing so the first thing that we try and do is educate them as to what it really means and again that stops people perhaps joining the journey realizing it wasn't for them and then and then maybe they're going to a different career or doing a different role i think that you know the thing i've done sort of relatively recently is going to secondary schools and what i do is i mock up scenarios so i can show them a little bit about what a client meeting looks like it's not a real client meeting of course but it gives them a bit of a feel and it's amazing the journey that somebody of you know, sort of 15, 16 years of age can go on when you say, I'm here to talk to you about tax and money. 
oh right and you can almost see the grayness sort of color closing in on them and it's, oh, it's just going to be awful and then you can inject a bit of energy a bit of fizz and make it exciting and genuinely show some passion for it and by the end of those sessions typically people will be sitting up and listening and they, they realize they can have a big impact they can impact their own lives that i think perhaps people feel sometimes that money is beyond them they are not in control of it as opposed to actually they are the person that controls their own their own you know, financial situation so um yeah i think there's lots we can do especially at grassroots level to show people this is not a gray dull industry this is a really exciting place to work you can help clients immensely and the gratitude and everything that you get back from those clients who you can help is you know it is a great payment in itself apart from obviously the, the financial rewards for doing it as well so yeah i think grassroots is, is an area where as an industry at government level as well we can certainly do a lot more to show people this is a very exciting place to work yeah no i certainly agree i think it would have been great to to learn some of those things as a as a kid myself so definitely agree so i think uh, sadly this is all we have time for today but um thank you both for, for taking the time out uh, to speak with us about some of the issues kind of in this space and and especially around advisor academies um for more news about your industry visit ftadvisor.com selling a little or a lot Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellincat.com.